Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Senior Editor at Food & Wine. Like many of us, Nigella Lawson has spent the last 13 months hunkered at home in an endless cycle of cooking, eating, washing up reluctantly, and then doing it all again just hours later. Unlike the rest of us, she has adapted her practices into a glorious cookbook called Eat, Cook, Repeat that celebrates and elevates this cycle into something contemplative and pleasurable. The renowned author and TV host joined Communal Table for an intimate conversation about isolation, grief, keeping house, re-entering society, the nature of gathering, and the pleasures of a long and non-photogenic braise. Nigella Lawson, I can't think of anybody I would rather have on the other end of the line. (laughs) Could you please tell me about, first of all, where you are sitting right now? And second of all, how you are? The easy questions. (laughs) Well, you say that. Um, (laughs) I'm sitting at my desk in my study, which doubles as my exercise room, and looking out through pretty dirty windows uh, into my garden Ooh. and even though it's pretty cold here the sun is out and everything looks green you know spring is budding all over the place and actually you know I actually I'm well um, I'm well and uh, feeling dare I say it's a bit hopeful oh the h word tell oh, me more yeah. about that it, how you how, how'd you get there? I don't know. And it's obviously a form of, um, it, 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 it's a form of denial, clearly. Yeah. But no, I suppose I'm feeling a bit hopeful because the we've had a long, grey, cold and wet winter. And even though it's still sort of nippy outside, the sky is blue. Um, I'm a couple of weeks away from my second vaccination. Yes. And things are opening up a bit here. We're allowed at the moment to meet up to six people in an open space. A bit cold to be eating in the garden. (laughs) And in another month, I think we're allowed to have people inside our homes. Six people, I think. Those lucky six. (laughs) (laughs) And how will I cope after a year, you know, in solitary? That's okay. The re-entry is going to be so strange. I was talking with a friend the other night, somebody who is in my little bubble of safe Mm -hmm. people, and he's recently opened a restaurant and was sort of talking about, you know, the because you can be up to 50% capacity here in New Mm -hmm. York. And he was talking about, you know, people's behavior. (laughs) And I was thinking, you have to allow people grace because we've been in our own heads this whole time and you know are you usually a social person well I'm something happened to me in the last few years which is probably to do with age which given everything has been quite fortunate which is I've come to cherish solitude whereas before I don't know that I enjoyed it enormously I enjoyed bits of it but Mm -hmm. not not huge chunks luckily now I do but I think I'm certainly used perhaps to doing quite a bit 
in the evenings, not every night. I, I hate having every night filled. <laughs> um, it's fun to cancel think, But now I think, how did we go out at night? What a strange thing to do. It's a bit like being a child. You eat your supper, you, you know, you play with your toys or, you know, with your book, and then you go to bed. And I, it, the idea that you would go out at, at night when it's dark, I mean, it seems unfathomable. But, you know, I've occasionally gone out because I have, if you live alone, you're allowed here, you're allowed a support bubble. Yes. And so there's been a couple I see and... You know, that's been wonderful. But I do feel a bit now. Someone said to me the other day, um, oh, we're, you know, come for lunch. I mean, outside, but come for lunch. We're having so-and-so for lunch in, in the garden. We put heaters out. And I thought a bit like, go out for lunch. And why did I do that? You know, there was, there, I don't know if you ever read the Nancy Mitford books. And the Uncle Matthew oh, yes. character always says, when it's when they go, so and so's coming for dinner, and he always he used to say, "Has he got any food in his own house?" <laughs> <laughs> so like that, like I've got food here. Why am I going out? But I think um, I will have to force myself. I, I I think I do find it difficult, and I've been really under lockdown. I mean, more uh, dra- draconian lockdown even than you know, was implemented by the government here. You know, I'd locked down before it was called <laughs> March. You know, I'd, you know, I was watching yeah. the news and I didn't think. Yeah. And then when it opened up a bit in summer, I didn't go out then either. I just, you know, stayed. I mean, the, the good thing then, it meant I could see my children. But I mean, otherwise, um, I have been really by myself. And it, I mean, it's been socially strange because you have to then navigate the people in your life who have maybe different thoughts about restrictions than you do. And, you know, and, you know, my, my particular circumstances where, you know, I lost a parent to this. So Um, I, you know, am very, you know, conscious of all of the rules and stuff. And, and some friends of mine were, you know, getting together for holidays and things and just hearing about that got me a panic attack. And it's very isolating because I know that some of them are all together and my husband and I are just sort of over here and, you know, made us feel like very antisocial people when the intent was to keep everybody safe. You know, and that- I know, I have to say, I do feel, feel very oh I did feel um very uncomfortable you know at some stage in the beginning with some people really seeming you know to feel they were impervious yeah and somehow thinking one was being neurotic I mean I've gone through such a lot that I I do feel that it almost it almost almost must feel like a personal slight when people are being so, in, you know, so, um, well, laid back to the point of, of irresponsible. It, yeah, and especially it was in here in the States, it was so, was so politicized, you know, as, as well. So it became this cultural touch point as well. And, you know, it, and it just became this tremendous source of frustration. So, you know, we were, you know, you mentioned hope and I've been trying to sort of look for those little cracks of where, where that is. I'm, I'm getting my second vaccination in four hours and 
the notion that I'll be able to travel and get on a plane at some point in the next few months is, well, like you said, when, when you said that well, somebody you say said that, but I don't know that we will. Right, right. <laughs> I, well, I want to, but I don't know that we will. But yeah. um, it, it's, I don't know. Yes, I would love to travel. I feel the need of a big sky. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, I feel anxious at the, the idea of being away from home. Yeah. It would be easier if I traveled than just being in someone else's house. You know what? I am weirdly the same on that. Like when you said that somebody said to, you know, come over for lunch, I had a momentary grip of panic there. Yeah. I was thinking I could fly somewhere in my, and mentally I could travel somewhere and go somewhere and do that travel. But going over to somebody's house seems so daunting. Yes. But yeah, I I sort of wonder, like with with all of it, if we're going to have to have kind of re-entry clinics too, because I'm borderline agoraphobic (laughs) in regular times. Though weirdly, I can like I think you and I share this. Like I can go and speak in front of a crowd. I can go on TV. I can do those things, and yet the notion of of going and being, you know, I, I finally went to my first indoor dining, and it was a friend's restaurant, and he knows everything that yeah. I've been through and takes extreme measures. And, you know, we were almost in a little bubble, uh, you know, sitting there, but the notion of going into a restaurant kind of daunts me, and I feel like there's going to have to be, I, I've never scuba dived, but you hear about people doing that and coming up slowly so they don't get the bend. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, I think human beings are... Um, enormously adaptable and the prospect of change is always terrifying and yet once immersed in the new environment we we become used to it quite quickly yeah and so I think it probably will be all right but I think what's quite hard is I think it probably redefines this whole period of relative seclusion and in my from in my case some some of the time total seclusion um it's it redefines how you think you want to be in terms of seeing people yeah and uh there are there are a lot of people i want to see and there are a lot of people i not that i have any ill feeling towards them but i i feel hesitant about about somehow getting full up, getting feeling somehow that I should say yes. and But that's always a difficulty, isn't it? Yeah. Slightly. Um, that that it's, it's very hard. It's a bit like, you know, for those of us who work freelance, you, you, you know, you either have too much work or not enough. And I feel that with going out that you can have, you, you can suddenly feel like there's no white space in your diary. And then all of a sudden you feel you're just mooching about and you should really make the effort to do something. It's It's been a strange thing to redefine what this time looks. And you see yeah. you know, people with all different kinds of hobbies and things. I know that for me, 
gardening really kept me tethered. And, you know, when it was warm enough to do outside, growing vegetables outside. And during this other time, uh, I, you know, have, I have 20 citrus trees in my house and four, oh, arrow, and four arrow gardens just because I needed to be around something. But, you know, I was focusing on these minute things, watching a fair amount of television, to, you know, to going through the sourdough phases and, and all of that. But, you know, you have to weigh that against, do I feel like, you know, this thing, I, the social thing I have to do out of obligation versus I could be sitting at home, you know, working on a little craft project and you have to determine that. And you're a person who, uh, you know, I, I want to get into this a little bit. You're a person of whom, you know, a lot is asked in a lot of your personhood and you were very generous to give it out, like sort of, especially the way you've been doing it on social media, but you're a famous enough person that people might think of you as an idea of a person rather than a person. And that's got to really take so much out of you. But, but the thing is, in a way, I have a very close circle of friends mm -hmm. and I'm used to being around people who know me very well. Yeah. And that makes a big difference. I'm, you know, I've never been the sort of person who wants to go to a film premiere mm. or anything. I mean, I, I, I go, I will go to a book launch if I'm, you know, if I'm friendly with the author. Yeah. Um, and I don't always say a long time, but that's, you know, that you know, I'm talking about the old days when something, <laughs> you know, the before times. Yeah. And I, but I certainly don't like, I don't, I'm very happy if I'm working and it's out there and I, otherwise I don't like to do those press type of things unless, you know, as I say, unless I know the person. So generally, you know, my idea of socializing comfortably is six people round a table. Yeah. I and occasionally just one other person, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely to just to be able to talk and, you know, to lie on a sofa with someone else lying on another sofa, just sort of chatting for hours. And especially, I feel, with old friends. And that that's tremendously comforting. And I think that even if I haven't seen all of those people in the last year, they're still very much part of a, a sort of nourishing network. Yeah, I, I feel like some of it's amazing the way that sort of friendships have transformed during this because I've made some new friends during this, either some of whom I have never met in person, but because, you know, people are you know, able to be emotionally naked in some kind of way because of, you know, all the trauma that was, was going on. Um, some people, you know, I've met people during the sort of, especially after my mother died, who just sort of yes. showed up in a really meaningful way who maybe we didn't know each other so much before, but they, they did something incredibly kind. There's a woman named Cynthia Greenlee who I've maybe met once in person and she sent me this basket of snacks and I've kept the basket to tin, and I just think that's so wonderful. That's so that yes, and and you see yeah. when you go through a traumatic event like you have, and I think you really you can't help but make sever some connections and make some others because just being understood, people not being embarrassed, which is a really difficult oh, thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like it's awkward. You know, the sort of people say, I didn't like to mention it because it would remind you. You know, that sort of thing. And you feel like, sorry? 
Yeah. <laughs> and what universe was I meant to have forgotten? Um, now, I've slightly changed now. I now feel lucky then, how fortunate not to have gone through anything that would would teach you to understand it. And I think a lot of people um, don't don't really know what to say and they do feel awkward and it's because it's an it's an alien subject and my sister when she was dying of cancer yeah it first got cross people used to say oh, I'm sure you'll get better and she <laughs> used to say she used to say if it makes you feel better to think that <laughs> I'm really glad for you but it doesn't make me feel better when right. you say it but then after a while she said to me I try and hear what people mean, not what they say. Yeah. And it's... And I think often we have to do that generally. And as you said, even when it's something not as heartrending as going through a bereavement, I think you're right. You know, I think people are maybe touchier than they often have, especially, you know, people who've been, you know... At home, homeschooling for you know months oh, and months, goodness, and yes. they, you know, that really, they're what my grandmother would have called on the top note, and <laughs> therefore maybe I can see that misunderstandings happen or feelings are hurt because so often when people get angry, I I have to think actually they're not angry, they're hurt, and they're expressing yes. it. Hurt people, hurt anger. people as they say. Yes, and so, <laughs> right. So, so I think that a bit, I mean, I've actually loved being more on Twitter and talking to people mm-hmm. who've cooked my recipes or who are yeah. panicking because they want to cook something but don't have all the right ingredients. And, you know, it, it, I think what it is really is that human connection is so important and food is one way of connecting. But, yes. But it's, it's really... It doesn't feel to me like it's, um, you know, an exercise or a service. It feels to me like it's a conversation, and I, and that and I think it's really important because, and I notice as well that when I reply to people, if I say that's lovely, I actually have a smile on my face yes. as I'm typing it. So of course. It's it makes me feel better too, but also it's touching and it is a connection and it's like a community. And in lieu of uh, a, a community of that's you know physically arranged, it if it's if it's virtual, if it's on social media, in a kind and you know just sort of an often witty way, then I I feel it's it feels very. Well, I hate the word life affirming, but like that sort of a thing, you know, it, yeah. I, I, I think it's important. Well, I think people have been thinking about their food so much more because, you know, in the absence of, you know, so often I ate, you know, sort of what I called maintenance salads where I'm just grabbing something yeah. and eating it at my desk. And, you know, there's this moment of pause and I feel like so many of us have had so much more you know, time, whether we want it or not, to sit down and contemplate what we're eating. And there's beauty in these moments of like, you you gave the world a moment about toast to the point 
where my dad texted <laughs> me about it, uh, where, you know, because we're living in these micro moments when, you know, something, you know, feels very relatable, feels very funny or, or, or as a flashpoint of something and people rally around it. And you talking about toast and microwaves, like kicked off <laughs> several news cycles. <laughs> I know, I wasn't really prepared for that. But I think also it's that when the news headlines are so terrible, yeah. the need for distraction, you know, really um, feels urgent sometimes. You know, like we see a, a lawyer suddenly turn himself into a cat <laughs> on a Zoom call and, you know, the, everyone is transfixed by it because there's something and there's something that I think is often undervalued, which is, and I'm not saying toast comes under this category, <laughs> but that normal life needs an awful lot of the trivial. And as you know, so if you're with someone who's dying or if you've had a bereavement or if you're in a crisis, or yes. a world crisis like this, that you cannot live in the serious moment all the time. The trivial is what makes life feel multifaceted, I think. I think it's quite important. As I say, I don't put toast in that. But I look, I think um, food has become important for people for so many reasons. And as you say, straightforwardly, the practical one that uh, there were no, at least here, there were no meals to be eaten outside the home. But it's not just about the pleasure food gives, which cannot be diminished. Mm -hmm. But I think that what food provides um, when you're cooking it is a structure as well. And I think there was that the days were generally pretty baggy and amorphous. But you have these fixed points when you're going to eat that you think about what you're going to eat. And so there's something to hang your thoughts on and to give a flow to the day. I think that is 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 important. Now, actually... I was very busy. I was in the great good fortune of having a book to write or to finish. I, I you know, I've, I sometimes say to write something to finish. I, I you know, I, the, the actual start on the book had been pretty minimal, mm -hmm. um, although I tested all the recipes. Although, although, of course, in lockdown for all that time, I added new recipes and I tested lots of things again and rejigged them. Uh, went on obsessively. Normally, there are people here to stop me, and no one <laughs> could stop me. And so, I was—you know—I had the companionship of thinking about food while writing a book is about it. But actually, thinking about what I'm eating or that quiet ceremony of, you know, getting my dinner ready, I—I I found really more. Well, I knew it was important before, but. I cooked for myself in a different way because before I'd always, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the time I'm cooking for other people. So when I cook for myself, I might either just put a bit of something that's left over or I might suddenly think like, well, oh, I want an egg on toast. Whereas because I wasn't cooking for other people, I, I wouldn't say I cook myself more elaborate food, but more recognizable meals. And, <laughs> Um, and I wanted to try out things that maybe I hadn't cooked before. Now, I don't mean dishes, but like creatures, you know, longestines. 
and that's sort of <laughs> longestines and sea urchin pasta. Something that I would have thought, well, I'll have sea urchin pasta when I go to Italy. Do you know? Yes. And doing it here, and I and it feels like such a treat, and I and I really enjoy. I really enjoy that. It's it's something that that I now feel slightly gosh, cooking for other people would be odd. I'm not used to that. And I have to take in other people's likes and dislikes. That's my, my husband is a, a fairly picky eater. And, and so, you know, the, when I'm cooking for myself, I have a little bit more freedom at, you, so I'd love actually to talk about this when you are cooking for yourself. Do you, yes. Do you plate? Do you sit down? Do you yes. what is what is the situation? Do you watch TV in the background? Like what, is, no, what does it look I, like? I'm. Do you know it's a terrible thing to say, which is I don't like to be distracted from my food. I love that. So I mean, I might occasionally look at my phone, but then I will put it away. Mm-hmm. No, I do sit down. I don't sit down. All day. I sit down to my supper in the evening, but I, I will, I can often be found leaning against the kitchen counter eating a sandwich in I, the daytime. Yes, I do a lot of that. <laughs> and, I, and I change the hours I eat. That's so weird, isn't it? Because I go to bed earlier and I get up earlier. So I eat like children's time. Or LA time. <laughs> so I, I think I eat somewhere in the middle of the ocean, really. My bedtime yeah. is somewhere somewhere there. So, I mean, is it sort of a three meals a day or sort of more periods throughout the day? Well, when I was, when I was writing the book, yeah. I was retesting recipes a lot, so eating them a lot. But for the first two weeks, you know, that sort of shock of it all. Um, I could I couldn't eat anything that wasn't a carb. Yeah. I would have a baked potato for lunch, sandwiches in between, pasta or rice in the evening, <laughs> chocolate after dinner. Yeah. So that was two weeks of that, and then I thought, no, I've got to get more structure and you know concentrate and have you know really think about what I'd like to be eating. So I do that more, but. It is really more, so I would say I, I, it's the only time I'm someone who, you know how there are some people uh, who say, oh, I forgot to eat, and oh, I yeah. think I don't get that. <laughs> I, the only time I understand that in the, is in the morning. I need lots of mugs of tea, but I don't really like eating early. I will do if I'm leaving the house, if I'm filming or something, but I don't like eating early. So really, I suppose... I left to my own devices. I'd have an early lunch around 12, which I never used to. I mean, it would be, but then sometimes I might do two, but then I would eat again at five or six or seven. I mean, I don't know, but, but sometimes it's, I do the, you know, everything they tell you not to do, don't have your big meal in the evening. (laughs) I always have my big meal in the evening. I do as well. And so what is, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, when I'm, you see my, in normal times, it's my house is also an office. And then we have a big lunch all together at one 30. So my big meal is at lunchtime. And how many people would that be in usual times when you're in production? Oh, I don't, uh, an extra two people. I mean, I don't, um, I don't have anyone full time. Mm -hmm. So, it would be so there'd be three of us, sometimes just two of us. And would you very be... rarely four people? Yeah, and like generally uh, eating what you're cooking for for the yes. show. 
Yeah, yeah. So you know, re- testing recipes or just you know trying out new things, or sometimes just if there's lots of work which isn't around that, it would be much more like I'll roast a chicken or something like that. Um, so that would be my normal way of eating. And now it, it is somewhat different, so I would eat less in the day and or sometimes, and more in the evening. And I also noticed that, well, this is not that the, the food I eat is changes within the flow of the week because when you know I who knew whether it was the weekend or the week? And I have to say, <laughs> Very to me, my life's always been a bit like that because I tend to write a lot at weekends anyway. But I started, there's a fishmonger I've been going to for years and years and years. And he, I get fish for him on Friday. And, you know, I mean, it's only one of me, so to make it more worthwhile, I would get enough fish to go Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And or sometimes not, you know, maybe nothing would last a Monday, but occasionally there are things that will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always know it's the weekend because I'm eating fish or seafood. <laughs> that is your marker. That's my marker, and then it's you know, then I, then I uh, and I start thinking. I was doing exercise this morning, and I realised I was not really concentrating because I was thinking. Right, I think I I want to get a you know a Dover sole this weekend and what should I put on it should I just do should I just do should I do some brown butter should I do uh, butter and like chopped up eggs should I and then I settle I could make a little wild garlic um sort of oil or butter and anyway so then I had to stop so I already started thinking about my fish coming but it's it's uh but it really is I always say to people when they're nervous about cooking you have to cook for yourself more because it's the only way to cook when you're not being worried about being judged and people do worry about that and you can if you can afford to let something fail and by that I don't mean give yourself food poisoning right um, but just a little bit you you don't actually because you're if you're not nervous you I think you can experiment and you just say afterwards do you know I didn't don't think the cumin worked in that do you know I won't do that again and you learn about what your tastes are. You learn about what works and what doesn't. And the sort of cooking that you find suits the person you are. And I, I always think people, there are very distinctive cooking styles which, are, which do fit in with people's personality. The sort of person who likes to, to plan and to cook things ahead or the person who gets um adrenaline rather than stress from (laughs) doing everything at the last minute so I think you have to learn your way in the kitchen and cooking for yourself and actually repeating the same dishes so that they you know them and it's not like a recipe um is really important way of cooking and so I'm used to cooking for myself quite often but I do feel it's I've I just took that for granted, whereas now I just feel enormously grateful for it. And it feels, you know, it feels rather gorgeous. It's a terrible thing to say. I feel sound like a mad person who no. sits around a table. I mean, of course, I miss feeding people. And I have sent some food out to friends if they haven't been well or, you know, bereaved yeah. or, you know, if they have a baby. But it makes me realize, again, how restaurant cooking 
would so not suit me. I mean, not only am I, uh, do I not have the skills, but there's something about sending food out that I think makes one lean towards conservatism yes. in the kitchen. And I don't like that. And also, you, if they say, oh, will you cook me that soup again? You know, you've got to cook it the same way. Which is, because <laughs> you have to, because that's what they're expecting, as they do in restaurants. And that, that for me, is quite against my character, where I quite like to add little things, see what else I've got in the fridge that could be used up in it, and so forth. And also, if you're cooking for yourself, I don't know if, well, actually, I know, I know that we sort of share this. Ugly food is the most delicious food, the brown food, the mushy food, yes. the, all of those. And uh, can you talk about that, the pleasure of that? Yes, please. I, I feel that as Instagram has <laughs> made colourful food premium. Yeah. And I, you know, as I admit freely, you know, I like to bejewel a plate with pomegranate seeds as much yeah. as the next woman. However, <laughs> I do think unphotogenic food, or at least unphotogenic if you're just snapping with your phone, um, it has so much depth of flavour and often much more emotional resonance. And on top of that, I think actually... It's food that people, and like we say ugly, it's not ugly. Yeah. It just is not photogenic. <laughs> like all, you know, like, like a lot of people as well who are wonderful. They may not be photogenic, but they're, it's beautiful. Forget that bit. I think we're getting to an odd thing with people. But what I would say as well is I, I thought about that a lot in writing the book because, as you know, I've yeah. got a chapter called Loving Defense of Brown Food. Right. And I did slightly, you know, channeling Dr. Freud. You know, I do think it came... It, I, I understood after a while that people have a fear of uncontained food. That is what they hesitate. It's the slop of a stew yes. rather than its colour. And the the lack of the, you know it doesn't it doesn't have structure. It's it's you know goodness knows what it is. They people fear <laughs> about it, but it is harder to make people understand uh, those sorts of textures. I have a recipe in the brown food chapter, which indeed is beige rather than brown, and I called it soupy rice because I I felt I had to give an indication of the texture, because people are not used to that. Think, even an Italian friend of mine, you know, says, you know, the the British always overcooked vegetables, and then they learned about undercooking, and then they really undercook all vegetables. And sometimes, you know, how an Italian can do spinach, and it's like the most wonderful yes. mulch. And I I feel that as well. So I can always tell if I'm looking at a food picture and the peas, if they're frozen a bright green, that they are not cooked. You know, I like them cooked. I've even been known to cook frozen peas for four hours and they are a, a sort of khaki grey and and so sweet and full-flavoured. Uh, in the same way as, uh, you know, if you get radicchio and put it in the oven, it looks all sad and brown and it tastes wonderful. So I think that... You know, that vibrance 
vibrancy is wonderful, but the, often the duller a food looks, the more vibrant its flavour is, I think. I think you get more depth, more, di- more different levels. And I think, for me, I'm not musical, as anyone will tell you. <laughs> and, um, but I think of food and eating as, uh, as uh, analogous to music, which is you need the bass notes and you need the soprano notes, and it all has to be balanced. And so you can use wonderful, bright flavors like a spritz of a lime if you're ha- if you're eating something which has great depth of flavor you know i would say that's why lime goes so well with cilantro but you you do want all you do want all the different notes otherwise it's a bit flat and in the same ways that often that's why salt and well, you know as you know samine wrote so wonderfully about that's why salt and lemon can change um, a dish completely because you you suddenly hear the deeper notes better when you've got a, a bit of squeak going on as well. Do you listen to music while you cook? Never. Um, I love I love hearing the sizzle and the, you know or crackle, and I like to hear the you know the bubble as a pan boils. And I think you can tell an awful lot from what stage of cooking you're at by the sound. And I also, I don't like background music. When I do listen to music is when I wash up, when I do the dishes, mm. I do often. Or, you know, because I find, you know, it makes me feel quite upbeat. But I'm not, I'm not, I don't even listen to music when I'm not cooking. It's terrible, isn't it? I, it, I you know, sometimes I like, I, I dance music. I don't, I'm not a listener to music. And I hope this will change, but... But I'm, I, I'm quite easily distracted, and so I stop focusing on it. And I don't like, I, you know, so it's difficult for me. Whereas I find it, I find it helps with the washing up. <laughs> Do you have a washing up ritual? I was, I was just reading an essay by a friend about that kind of as his self care is really ritualizing that part of it. He recently got his own apartment for the by himself for the first time and he really is taking that moment of washing up as this holy thing for him is it it, it, i think it's very i think it's actually um i read a piece i don't know about someone trying to be in the moment while washing up and noticing what was happening rather than just doing it without paying attention i do have to pay a bit of attention i'm not very good at um you know, allow myself to be totally in the moment when I wash up. But I but I don't mind any amount of washing up. I cannot bear putting away. Yes. Oh, goodness. I cannot bear it. It <laughs> makes, uh, it's, I, and I can be, I can be like a student with the Leaning Tower of Pisa in crockery on the, on the side of the sink, piled <laughs> high before I can bear to put it away. Do you, so I'm, do you, I'm the same with laundry. I am. I am heaps all over the place. It drives my husband just out of his mind because I've just got heaps of clothing everywhere, and he's a very tidy person. Sorry, Douglas. Well, it's always good to have one untidy and one tidy person together. It doesn't work two untidy people and two tidy people. I think is is not good for the soul either. <laughs> well, and you know, and especially writing a book is 
you know, it is it is a privilege and a pleasure to get to do it, but it's so hard. I've only written the one. You've written so many of them, and it it just puts your mind in in such a strange place while you're doing it that other things fall by the wayside. And you know, and they have to. Yeah, they have to. Although I do find that sometimes I pace a lot when I write. Mm-hmm. I pace out sentences, um, and probably was walking about 20,000 steps a day. (laughs) Uh, But I also sometimes find I need to do some physical or manual activity to unlock my thoughts. So I might suddenly go and need some dough, and then I come up again. I like to interrupt writing with, with work that puts my intelligence into my hands rather than locks me in my head. But what I can't do is talk or, or, you know, do admin. Mind you, I can never do admin very well. (laughs) So I'm not very good at that. So admin and everything like that, and sometimes emails do fall by the wayside when I write. But, you know, I think the thing with writing is you can't really do it until the pain of writing feels less, feels less, frightening than the pain of not writing and I always think I feel writing is is pain and pleasure in in, intertwined so you know if you put get a candle and you pour the candle wax on your hand it hurts a bit but that warmth is also is is rather wonderful as well. Now I sound like the Marquis de Sade, but <laughs> I don't mean on my hand. I don't, I'm not talking about <laughs> delicate places. I, I'm but a the, former dominatrix. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I actually writing in when I was really in seclusion, rather than trying to have to find seclusion, yeah, um, was helpful. I was aware that my focus wasn't as good as it was so that I might have more pacing and space between paragraphs, that I might write for 20 minutes and then sort of pace about for half an hour or an hour and then come back. And then, you know, but I, because of course, normally you think, oh, I've got these four hours this morning to write in, whereas of course there was every, you had so long, it was easy to think, oh, I'll do that later. But I, I found it, I I actually enjoyed the writing process perhaps more than I have for a while because it, the book gave me such companionship, I suppose, yeah. and it was so wonderful to be, to be thinking about things that gave pleasure. Although, you know, there were times when I thought I will never remember what word it is I'm searching for. But somehow I managed it. I just found that because of it, I my ability to take in words left me. So I, I couldn't read. And I'm someone who normally reads I couldn't read four hours a day. Oh, I, I couldn't read and I couldn't watch television. Yeah. I, I watched a lot of television. I watched a lot of I television. haven't, you see. I like watching television with um with company because I'm one of those annoying people who likes talking about everything. <laughs> um so I I didn't watch much. A few things, but I'm not good at noise. And 
and I, for that reason, that's why I don't listen to music. I, I really have a very limited ability to have noise. I, it tires me. I, I, and so the the bright light of a television and the uh, and the noise of it can drain me. Yeah. So I'm not good at that. That's why I always prefer reading. And then when I couldn't read, for a while it was alarming. And then I just thought, well, I'm writing a lot. Yeah. So maybe that's that's what's ha- what, what's happening. So, I, could, I could read poetry during this, weirdly. Like that was the thing that I, I read a lot of poems about food during this. Yes, that's and, wonderful. Yes. And also the, uh, the this TV show I actually did really watch and love was Lenny Henry's Chef, which I had not gotten to see during the original run. <laughs> I, mean, yes. I loved it. I loved it so much. Um, but with with the writing, you've, you've written, kind of, it's it's my favorite kind of cookbook. And, and I feel like there are sort of British cookbook authors who maybe do this more than some Americans, where it is that balance of essay and recipes and technique and all that kind of stuff. What is it about that particular format that really draws you? Well, I think, I think that one of the great pleasures in a food is contemplating it. And I, I suppose because I'm not a chef, that I uh, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see what I do as perhaps the, the 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 emphasis of my recipes is certainly not on technique. It's on what flavors I like and what textures I think go together and how to make that work uh, in any number of ways. So I like to explore those other ways while. I come to the recipe in question. I need to feel I I want to convey what it is about uh, this pairing or this recipe that I love and how it might be you could do it slightly differently depending on what you have in your fridge or pantry and and somehow to try and investigate what it is about any particular flavor uh, that that holds my attention or means something. And sometimes I might do some research to to sort of find out about what that might mean, why it might be in the properties of the produce. But more often than not, it's it's writing about memories or um, thinking much more about the how food is in the context of a life. And I think... That's really what interests me. And I actually started writing about food. I mean, I wasn't a food journalist at the beginning at all. I was a literary journalist, actually. I was um, the deputy editor of the Times Book Supplement when I was 26. And I did that for a while. I was on the arts pages. I then left and I wrote book reviews instead. They they thought I was mad for leaving a staff job. (laughs) And I felt that I was being paid to worry and not to think. Yes. And so I wanted to do, to do some thinking. I don't know how, how well that went, but I did it. <laughs> and I became an op-ed columnist. So I was certainly not in the food background, but I was always interested in languages um, and and writing. And to me, it seemed such a challenge to try and write about food, which is so not wholly, but to a large part, occupies the physical realm 
And yet language is abstract. And how do you write about food in a way that conveys things like taste and sense? And, and I think, you know, I came to the conclusion in a way you, you, you have to use metaphor and you, you have to paint a picture with words, which is enough way of putting it, but you, <laughs> you do. And, and so you have to evoke the food rather than boldly describe it. That's what I think. That's what interests me at any rate. And it does mean that I write at great length. And of course, I kind of, again, there was no one to stop me. I mean, not that <laughs> I, I, not that I would anticipate someone saying, no, don't do that. But I, there were meant to be more chapters, but I found I wrote at such length about the cha- chapters I had that I actually couldn't fit in other things. And I rather liked that, that it meant I could really say what I want and t- allow the ingredients or the memories and the recipes to lead me where I wanted to go, which makes it sound as if I'm just having airy-fairy thoughts, which they weren't, because I like to interweave suggestions of what to cook and and what to add to something, how it could be set up as part of a meal. So they're often very practical discussions going on. But I, I think the food is so fascinating because it occupies so many territories, you know, history, anthropology, memoir, and then for me, aesthetics, you know, it's so beautiful trying to capture the the beauty of it. And 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 of course you then have the practical concerns and the the fact that it's manual labor which is what can make it so so freeing in a way that again you're you when you cook you know i try to write about that that you have to occupy the senses because you 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 have you can't really think about it you can have a few thoughts before you start but instead you're letting touch and taste and smell and sound uh, lead you where, uh, to where you're going. And I, and I love that. But I like the fact that it is also, it can be as academic or a, a, a discipline as you want it to be, and, or it can be not at all. So I think it has tremendous character and it can be, food can be written about in so many ways. The important thing is that you are always true to your own voice. It doesn't work trying to speak in or write in someone else's. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, and that's a process just doing it over and over and figuring out what did I take from here? What is mine? And, and coming to that place of. Yes. And I very, yes. And I, you see, I love giving the genealogy of a recipe. Yes. So I will credit where I, where, how it entered my life, even if I've changed five ingredients out of six. Now, occasionally I don't change that much, but you know, the thing is, you, you, in a way, you know, you get inspiration um, from so many places and it all feeds into making something into a recipe. And I think for chefs, it's harder because to a certain extent, often part of their appeal is novelty. Oh, you know, what's going to be new in this or what haven't I, what couldn't I do at home or, you know, and that, I think that's, you know, that could be a real a dangerous impulse in restaurants, but I understand it. Whereas 
if you're a home cook and writing for other home cooks, it's really about, you know, I might have seen a recipe and seen I can make it a bit simpler because I can't do that fiddly stuff. And this is how I got, got to it. And I le- left that bit out or put it all in, just roasted it instead of <laughs> deep frying or whatever it might be. And I think that that it really, it helps because... It doesn't matter if, you know, it's good to say where you got the idea from, but we're not all, we're, we're not all seeking in our own homes to cook something that people go, wow, I've never thought of these two ingredients together. You want dinner to taste good and you want it yes. to not to exhaust you. And in the same way, I have many recipes which I say, when I'll say, look, look, this is time consuming. It's not difficult. You know, people do confuse the two don't choose this recipe unless unless you've got two hours to potter about in the kitchen and it's important that too because there are times when you want you know you want to spend the kitchen immersed in the smells wafting from bubbling pans (laughs) that's perfect but there are times when it's the end of the day and you know you feel this slightly that really you want to be on a sofa you know with a glass of wine that you want something that you just put in a pan stir it about a bit and then put it on a plate so I think it you know all these things make a difference and I would say as well about being a cook which is because I because I often you know I haven't I don't have training of any sort I often will worry and I think oh no I haven't made enough uh, cake you know, cake batter to fill the tin, but I was anyway. And then, of course, it rises and it's absolutely right. So I know to say to people, I know you will think that there's not enough batter here. I promise you there is. But if I were more knowledgeable, I wouldn't have had the worry in the first place. So I wouldn't be connecting with other cooks having the same worries. You know, it all comes back to that grace that we, you know, I was saying that we have to give other people when they return to society, but to ourselves as well and be okay with the the joy of the imperfection because that's how you learn things yes and also you know i would never get onto one of those you know like baking shows or anything because the <laughs> idea of making 12 cookies that look identical oh i God. would never do it no. and i'm not sure i want to yeah you know i i you know there is a difference in shop bought and homemade yeah and I, you know, I always say there's beauty in the rupture. I like scars. I like the kind of pottery where something has fallen apart and somebody put it back together. I, I love yes, that. Yes, I think it's so important. And I, I think that the quest for perfection is corrosive, actually, in so many fields. Least of all, because I think that, you know, the perfectionist never finds perfection. So it is just like one one long, uh, one arduous grind towards self-flagellation. <laughs> and, you know, everything can be improved every time you do something. And that is, you know, I find the difficulty because I can test a recipe. However many times I test it, I always want to change something, which may not be an improvement. Or maybe, <laughs> and it's very hard to let go. I mean, I always joke that I know these days things are... Uh, uh, digital rather than analog but I always joke that I by the 
my publishers only get a manuscript from me from you know they're whole they're pulling me i'm holding on to my manuscripts and they're dragging <laughs> me across the floor until i actually fall away from it you know yeah, the the whole like just hit send thing. <laughs> yeah, well, let me add this, and you know, on proofs. Oh, I've got another idea, and always oh, the thing that they're used to now. When I go, I'm really sorry to say this to you, but I have another recipe because <laughs> we the we did the we had did the photo shoot very late, and I can never resist doing something that isn't on the shop list and that isn't even written down. I suddenly have an idea for something because I've got some ingredients left over from something I've just cooked. And because I love that, I think it keeps something, it keeps it live. Well, that way it, you save it for the next book then. No, I put it in. <laughs> I was, just... <laughs> no, I managed to get another 32 pages out of it in the last minute. <laughs> so what is, what do you think, what is the most joyful recipe in there for you? Well, I, in many levels. So there's there's a recipe that I'm trying to choose which one it would be. In many ways, I would say the fried chicken sandwich. Oh, because please say more about that. <laughs> well, I you know I think deep frying can be quite frightening at home. Yes, a lot of people are scared of it, and you know huge amounts of oil, and so and I think that deep frying is so much more accessible if you're not doing a lot. So I have a recipe for a fried chicken sandwich for one because you really could have a saucepan, small saucepan, I think. You know, mine's eight inches wide. And uh, and you can do that for one person so easily. You're not having to monitor lots of things. You're not looking, you know, like a particularly greasy spaniel you know, nervous, greasy <laughs> spaniel um, after a while. And I I make kefir. I have kefir every day. Mm-hmm. And we don't really get buttermilk in, as easily as you do there. So I thought, well, I'll use the kefir. And I wanted to, to marinate the meat and... Get it, get a, get the tang from the kefir, and get a bit of fire in there as well, but not too brutal. And by the time I carried on doing it, you know, I I felt I'd that thing of dipping the marinated bit of chicken into the slightly pink tinted it with some smoked paprika into the flour, and then back into the marinade, and then back into the flour, you get this wonderful shaggy coating that gives quite a thick, crunchy carapace, um, a bit like the ideal fish a bit fish in fish and chip world, as we would call it, you know, that really quite thick and crunchy. And although I picture it with a bun in the book, which is great, you know, a, a sort of burger bun, and, you know really pile up because it's really what you put in a sandwich apart from the main component isn't it so pickled red onions so they're you know this wonderful like a pink in a stained glass window and you know I add um to chili crisp to garlic mayonnaise and then maybe some some pickles and maybe some kimchi and I carry on like that I also have a recipe for a very very easy soft white loaf sandwich loaf and which is how I really sort of old-fashioned bread you know that it's sourdough is great but sometimes you want bread that just tastes 
you know, the sort of bread that you you might have eaten in your childhood, soft bread, comforting. And may I say, you know, putting a fried chicken sandwich into homemade soft bread, and I have to, this bread is amazing, easy, and I converted it from a recipe by Dan Leppard, which is you just give three 10-second kneads, each one t- 10 minutes apart, and that's that, and then you just leave it to prove roll it up, put it in a tin. It's very simple. And it's the opposite of sourdough, really, which is a bit uh, like a club, and the difficulties are what make people pleased about it. I mean, I'm not talking about the taste. The taste of sourdough is wonderful. And this bread, I've had so many people who've never made bread before. It looks almost like bread in the cartoon of bread. If you know, a bread emoji, it looks like <laughs> this loaf. And it's, it's generous because it gives... It gives confidence to people and make people happy, and it's great for toast. That was the toast <laughs> bread, and I think that so that's a really joyful combination. And it's it's uh, bread is bread. I think making bread is can be so grounding. I really love it. I mean, there was a there's an English food writer I think around the war. Margaret Costa, and she says, when you make bread, you feel that your daughters will rise up and call you blessed. You know, that's a (laughs) quotation. And there is something about, it's it's incredibly simple, really, bread. I mean, and I love that. So the essential food stuff, you know, wheat and water. And yet it, it gives such a deep feeling of contentment, you know, both making it and eating it. So I feel it's... It, it, altogether, it's a very high reward exercise. But it, as I say, this is a very simple, you know, bread recipe. But there's no, there isn't really always a direct correlation at all between how simple something is to achieve and how good it tastes. You know, sometimes, you know, you can do like I sometimes think, well, is a cheese souffle better than a cheese omelette? I mean, I don't normally like going, is this better than that? Right. It's productive exercise. But I don't know that always the harder, the harder recipe tastes better. I don't, I don't always find that. It, and then sometimes those getting simple things right is, is very pleasing. Whereas complicated recipes, not that I do them, uh, sometimes feel that it's more a question of, um, you know, you've survived the assault course. Yeah, it, you know, you talking about the bread made me think there's the comfort in it because there are a few sort of life skills where you think like, if I can do this, I'm going to be okay. I can take care of myself. And I think bread has yes, been that for bread. a lot. Yeah, you don't... Well, the, the only things I was... I mean, I'm someone who keeps you know, supplies, you know, of things in the pantry and if even not in the pantry, in cardboard boxes, you know, out, you know, dotted about the place <laughs> because um, my mother was a child in the Second World War and she, you know, she, I inherited many things from her, but two things in particular are hatred of waste and fear of running out. Oh, God, and yes. So oh, I God. always have stuff. So I wasn't really worried about, you know, running out of things mm-hmm. at, at first in lockdown, but I, and I, I knew that I needed to have tea and I needed to have the wherewithal to make bread um, and butter. <laughs> and that would be all right. Yeah. 
it, it's there's something so so comforting about that and i think you know that's what i think you've written the perfect book for now it, it is it's what people need to feel grounded and you know and in this time of isolation to know that they can cook for themselves and make themselves happy and that they can feed themselves there but that there are these moments where you know the the joy is 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 present and we can return to something and we're going to get to define what that is but we're going to be well fed during it and you yes just... i really think so and i think it's so important i think that it's to 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 feel that you are worth feeding you see someone on twitter said to me you know, I was saying I'd cook this or that, and, they, and he said I don't can't see the point in 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 just cooking for myself. And I, you know, had to speak to him and talk to him because it's a very sad, I think, a sad thing to feel. And I can understand it if yeah. you know you're living the sort of life where a lot of times you're you know eating plenty, but you can't if you're living by yourself and you're in lockdown. It's um, it's not it's not a route you can take, and it's also you know, a lot of women feel, my mother used to say, you know, from, used to, it used to make me, I probably made me cross because, you know, I was, a, you know, a teenager, <laughs> but I, but made me sad too. And she would go, I don't know why a friend of hers, um, uh, she used to go for lunch with a, uh, a friend of hers. And she said, I don't know why she bothers to set the table and cook. I mean, it's only us two. And I don't think that's a, that's a really an awful way of thinking. And I think if you carry on, if you carry on thinking it, you're not worth making an effort for, it, it can't help but bleed into other areas of your life. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely been in those things where I've just been so low and depressed. I thought I'm not worth feeding and mm. having, you know, the possibility of, you know, those simple recipes that you can achieve, that you can make with, you know, lovely ingredients or whatever you happen to have around your house. Like that is an, it's an act of hope and it's an act of investment in yourself. So what, what would you say? And also, the, you know, Karen, I don't think it always has to be cooking. Yeah. It's allowing yourself to take pleasure. You can, yeah. get, you can get a good loaf of bread elsewhere. You can get a fabulous cheese you get some wonderful tomatoes and you can just think about it's simple and it's perfect uh, it's just allowing yourself to take pleasure is the key it doesn't I don't I I think that if you if you're if if, if cooking isn't what you want to do I would say maybe you know you maybe you're cooking the wrong things if you feel that you're cooking things that are too complicated um, you have the wrong idea of what cooking is but I, I certainly think it's the key is allowing yourself to take pleasure. You know, you know how I go on about therapy and believe everybody should be in it. And I'm here to say, I think you have a second career here as a, a therapist. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I would say to folks, you know, get get this this book because it again it feels like an act of self-care on more levels even than you would expect and you know and I know that coming out of this a lot of people you know feel damaged in their souls and they and mm -hmm. and stuff but reading this book is so it's affirming it is it is uh joyful and like I said it is such the right book for the moment and I just thank you for writing it oh thank you so much I mean it's a lovely thing to say and you know, it's anyway. It's there's a lot of love in in the book, and um, and I think that's why because it has come out in the UK, and I think that's why people have connected with it. 
Yeah, and and it's coming out uh, very soon here. Any well. moment. I'm really <laughs> sorry I'm not in the States oh. for the launch, but, you know, I will be zooming particles of myself as much as possible. <laughs> and, you know, and in the show notes for this, we will uh, link to where people can buy it. Is there an audio book of this where people can hear you? Well, the, the difficulty is it's there is a UK one, but there isn't a US one because, of course, the measurements are different right. from one edition to another. And you can't get, I'd love to do a, a, an American one. Um, and I enjoyed doing it. I mean, I enjoyed doing the audiobook, I have to say. So I'd love to do one in the States, but you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows what the year will hold but i do know that we're gonna be cooking all of this <laughs> the beautiful brown food and the, yeah. and, and all of this and i'm I'm just i'm and some ludicrously pink food well i'm i'm grateful to you for writing this book and and for this conversation my soul needed it today <laughs> very very much and uh I, I i've been so looking forward to talking to you and i love your podcast and you know i like what you do but it's really lovely to it's really lovely to have this sort of this moment of connection yeah, and for folks, this is this is the first time I'm saying it th- this out loud. This is probably uh, the last time we're doing this podcast in this particular format. Uh, so there, you will, you know, keep keep tuned for a new food and wine podcast. But I wanted to close out with Nigella because who better than uh, you know having our hundredth episode and having a guest as, as special as as you are? So it's a real honor. Thank you. So it felt right for this, uh, for now, final episode to bring in the amazing human being who makes this possible, who I work with closely every week, that, uh, you know, she just, she makes magic happen. Anthra Sinha, hi, how are you? Hello. Uh, I I have lured you here under uh, slightly (laughs) different pretense. Uh, do want to talk about a few favorite moments from the podcast, but I'm also going to make you answer the five questions. Oh, oh my <laughs> which gosh. I, which I did not uh, prepare you for. Yeah. But, but first, do you have, uh, you know, you came in and uh, saved our ass as a producer on this podcast during quarantine. This whole time we have actually, have we ever actually met in person? I was trying to figure this out. I think we met only one time and it was before I'd officially started this job. It was when you came to Birmingham, I think for um, like our staff retreat situation, but that was such a brief interaction. So, (laughs) so, because I remember specifically wanting to like go over and talk to you and I was there for less than 24 hours and like our whole team was getting together and stuff. And I, you know, and, but I couldn't remember. I, I, I definitely took note that you were there. I didn't remember if we actually got to speak or not because, like, I have social anxiety. Stuff starts <laughs> whirling. I don't know what happens. It's so but, funny, though, because before this job, I was at my recipes. So I was very intimately familiar with your Instant Pot 
video series. <laughs> so I feel I felt like I had already known you and your personality and everything. So. Oh my gosh. Well, it has been such a joy to you know, have you come to Food and Wine properly and getting to work with you on this podcast and seeing your incredible voice grow and the you know the the stories that you have been bringing to the magazine have been you know some of the fa- my favorite stuff that we've done that that cover of it was January was it that was January I believe or yeah. was it February yeah it was January <laughs> I have heard more about the cover with yours and your mother's recipe than I have about any other cover since I've started working here oh my gosh <laughs> you, you, you did so well, you did something really just beautiful and important and and uh and you made a lovely video about it with your mom that we will be linking to in the show notes <laughs> <laughs> as well and uh you know we tried to get your mom on the podcast <laughs> and, uh, I know. she I, I think the video that was like that was so much that I think it was just like, okay, I feel like that's enough. I'm not going to put myself out there any more than I need to after that video. But if you don't mind shouting at her Instagram handle. Yeah, of course I will. She is very down. So she has a sourdough Instagram account that she's very proud of called bull underscore dough, D-O-U-G-H underscore ball, P-A-L. It's a pun in Hindi, but it's all sourdough. I meant to ask you about that the last time because you had mentioned uh, when you were on previously, what is the pun? So there's a Hindi song called Baldo Bal, um, which is like, I don't know, it's basically it's like fleeting moments, but she just made a dough pun out of it. So <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's where we're at. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I love it. And her work is absolutely incredible. And I believe she sent a loaf to uh, Kushbu Shah our yeah. colleague who was just like nothing better could have happened in her whole life than that it felt like a benediction so that was a really lovely thing but you know also on the podcast do you have a moment that has really stood out to you that you've loved or stuck with you or or anything throughout this oh. this weird time yeah I have a couple I was actually looking back I think June of last year was my first pod when I first joined so yeah. since then we've had on so many guests that I feel like even just for me, I learned about so many facets of the food world that I didn't really even think to like consider. Like I remember, I think we had Jasmine Moy on very oh, early on. She's one yeah. of our few two-time guests. Yeah. And so I had never even contemplated the world of like hospitality law. And especially in the peak of COVID when people were dealing with, you know, like leases and contracts and stuff, it was, it was very enlightening. So that conversation to me really stood out. Yeah. I mean, she's such a brilliant human being. If folks want to uh, find her, uh, restaurantlawyer.nyc is her site. And she's just so brilliant. And you know what? She also offers her services, especially for uh, women of color who are in the culinary world, to try to get them uh, you know, really great deals on things. Like she she is, you know, fo- you know she'll serve, uh, you know, anyone in, in restaurants and stuff, but she really wants equity for uh, people in the food world to be able to open restaurants or, you know, get really cool endorsement deals and stuff. And I, I just, I love the woman. I love her mission. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then on top of that, I just very selfishly love the few moments we've had Kelsey Youngman on. Um, <laughs> in every meeting, yes. we always joke we could listen to Kelsey Youngman, like read a phone book and she could sell it to us. I feel the way she talks about food, I'm just I don't even eat beef or pork, but I'm like, yes, I would really enjoy this pot roast <laughs> because she describes things like so eloquently. 
yeah, she's, oh God, what a gift of a human being she is. And for folks listening, listen all the way to the end, because we're going to go out on a, a grace note from uh, the beautiful Kelsey Youngman. Like she's just, you know, again, such a good soul. Like we're just surrounded by good people Absolutely. here. <laughs> and it's such a nice thing. And, you know, I, I was going back through all the list of, of episodes. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a hundred, it's weirdly technically like 101 because we split Sam four into two parts because it was too good a conversation. But <laughs> I just keep coming back to all the moments where I cried or somebody else cried. Really? And we really had this moment, like I just, you know, this was a video podcast for a while too. And I remember, uh, you know, holding hands with Kwame Onwachi and, and just like looking into each other's eyes and crying and making promises. And <laughs> that really stood out for me. I think the most intense one uh, was with Trish Nelson from The Spotted Pig, where she was uh, talking about the abuse that she and other people had endured um, you know, from Ken Friedman and Mario Batali and stuff like that. And that, I have to say, it rocked my world. Uh, it stayed in my head for months and months and months and, you know, and just really sort of reframed a whole lot of things for me. And I'm eternally grateful to Trish for that conversation. And, you know, honestly, to anyone who came on and really bared their souls and there was an, <laughs> kind of an ongoing joke for a while about like hey did you make him cry this week and I'm like well they made me cry or <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of emotions and uh and all that but you know one of my favorite things always was to see how people would respond to these questions so <laughs> I'm gonna uh turn it on to you sorry I didn't prepare you for this surprise it's okay, because whenever you ask these questions to your other guests, I'm like contemplating my answers. So it doesn't feel as daunting. <laughs> I know. I sort of like, I have my like list of answers in the back of my head as well. But, um, what is your comfort food? Ooh, okay. So my mom makes the best chicken biryani. And I say best because I'm heavily biased, but I can never <laughs> recreate it myself or eat anything in a restaurant that comes close. So that's been my comfort food. What's the secret of it? Honestly, so Indian food for home cooks tends to rely on a lot of store-bought spice mix. So we use like Sean Bombay biryani mix on top of my mom's secret. Like we use mace and like saffron water and lots of fresh mint. So I don't know. She put something in there that I'm just like, I can't find anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a secret little thing that she uh, like keeps in a vault somewhere. Exactly. I'm sure that's what Maybe. it is. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> okay. What is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Mm, I think, honestly, I miss just eating with my friends. So my memories of them are much more tinged with emotion than they probably were in the moment. <laughs> um, I think, so, there was a meal that I had at... Bottega in Birmingham, which was with my friends. Oh, Frank Stitt's place. Oh, yes. I love that one. And to be honest, the meal was delicious, but I remember the most about it was that it was my friends and I, like our year anniversary of living in Birmingham together. So that was just like a joyous sort of moment for us as a celebration of like, you know, became close friends over time. So that's kind of one of my top meals that I've shared with someone that made me emotional. <laughs> I, yeah, that return is going to be uh, pretty amazing. And, yeah. you, know, and, you know, and, you know, and Nigella and I had talked about that too. It's going to, I think it's going to take some practice. I've been doing like exposure therapy, I guess, to myself and like trying to 
enter the world a little bit more because I'm, you know, I'm a little over a week out after my second vaccination, but it's still, it's going to take a while. I feel like. Yeah. I feel yeah. like even for me, I'm like, I'm excited to be fully vaccinated, but then it's like, okay, now can I handle the overstimulation of being in a large crowd again? That's the next question. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I'm borderline agoraphobic and I don't say that in like a cutesy way. <laughs> it's like, it was hard for me to leave the house sometimes before this. So this is going to be, you know, it's going to be a lot. I, I've eaten in, I did eat in one restaurant indoors, um, you know, and it was like after I'd been vaccinated, but, and it took a minute <laughs> to mm-hmm. be like, wait, there's a waiter coming over to the table. Oh my God. You know, what do I do? <laughs> it comes back, I think. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So what is then the last meal that somebody made for you in their home. Cause you, so you've, you've been living with your parents during this. And yes. uh, so being in other people's houses is what, also one of those things that's, you know, going to be a little funny unless you've sort of been in a pod and, and, you know, I don't know what your circumstance has been, but what is the last meal that you had that like wasn't cooked by you or your parents? Man, it's been such a long time, Kat. I can't even remember. <laughs> I know. It's really hard because, you know, I started asking that question of chefs because no one cooks for them. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and so it was sort of a like really rack your brain kind of moment. And, and, and it inevitably turned out to be like a holiday and somebody's like, parents cooking uh, for them or a partner's parents or, you know, something like that. But... Yeah. So the holidays we spent just us together, but actually I remember now. So um, in January, since if we figured that I wouldn't be going back to Birmingham for at least a few more months, I kind of like packed up my apartment and everything. And my friend who was there to pick up some furniture, dropped me off some homemade butter mochi and oh. It was just such a sweet gesture, and I didn't know when I'd see her again, and I think that's kind of like, yeah, that was the last thing someone made for me. It wasn't in her home, but it was a gift, so I feel like that counts a little bit. <laughs> oh, that, no, that absolutely counts. That is beautiful and thoughtful, and I bet you just absolutely savored those. Yes, for sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what living musician would you want to cook for, and what would you make for them? Um... Okay, so I've been currently going through a bad buddy phase, maybe because I've been living in Miami for the past or South Florida for the past year. <laughs> no, this is great. Um, it's like a phase of sense of his music, but also just him as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what meal I'd make him. Actually, bad buddy may enjoy the biryani, to be honest. I feel like he could... <laughs> You can hang. <laughs> yeah, I thought I could make a chicken biryani. That would be that would be a fun meal. <laughs> oh my god, I love that so much. And you can go like rollerblading and stuff. Like, yeah, exactly. I, I just for some reason I just have this image of like everybody sort of where you are in Florida, just like rollerblading everywhere. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of longboarding, a lot of rollerblading. Um, yeah, it's actually one of the things I'm pretty fortunate about is that the weather's always nice and warm. So. What's Getting outdoors like? has been such a solace, especially during COVID. So, oh well, I mean, mo- moving into that, like self care. You you know the question here. You have five uninterrupted minutes for self care when our lovely boss Hunter Lewis has. It's, let's say everything's all locked up. He's taken care of. There's, <laughs> you know, all of like all of work is done for the day. Everything is taken care of. You got five minutes. What do you do? Um, maybe go annoy my brother. Since we're living together for the first time since high school. So we've like wow. kind of regressed back into that teenage dynamic of just 
driving each other up the wall. <laughs> um, no, but like realistically, I've been getting really into yoga again, a new hobby just in the past year. So just like five minutes of like just breathing really helps me calm down. Um, maybe do like a really quick flow if I feel like I've been sitting down for too long. Um, yeah, that's that's my go-to as of right now. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there like a particular way that you think people could get started on that who are maybe new to this whole self-care thing? To self-care or to like... Well, to, or to yoga. Like if there is like a particular like breathing or flow that you like, is there something that you would recommend for people? Yeah, I think this is pretty... I think that most people are kind of aware of the whole like inhale for three, hold for five, exhale for five. Um, that's especially when I'm starting to feel anxious. That's kind of my go-to to just calm my nerves. But as far as yoga goes, I feel like, I don't know. I've grown up in a household where yoga has always kind of been around for my parents. Yeah. So it's just been a lot of like just moving in ways that feel nice, which is yeah. seems so simple. It doesn't have to be like a regimented you have to, you know, get sweaty and burn this many calories, but just, okay, your hips are feeling tight, you know, maybe just try to like do downward dog for like 10 seconds to see if you can like loosen up a little bit. Just, it's more intuitive than people think it is, I think. Yeah, that's, I, I think that is one of the things like it, it's when it is just part of regular practice, it's not, I think the thing that maybe keeps a lot of people from it is they see it as this thing. Uh, I'll, I'll go there. white people see it as a, this thing that you have to go to a, a studio and, and do and stuff. But if it's just, you know, the thing that you do or your, your breathing is automatic and your body does that. I think that's such a lovely, lovely thing to, to have. And, you know, we can yeah, and you can absolutely fit it in five minutes. It doesn't have to be like, I'm going to do yoga for an hour and a half. And this is going to be my morning. It can just be five minutes. Yeah. I think five minutes. Give yourself five minutes today, folks. <laughs> and you know what? I usually do uh, this part by myself, but let's, you know what, pal, let's close it out together. I want to sure. thank you. I want to thank you for everything that you have uh, brought to this podcast. You have, you know, just you've brought your whole, your whole self to it and transformed it and made me think and consider new things and you have shown endless patience with me as I have thrown you heaps of stuff at the last minute and you have done it with such tremendous grace. So thank you for that. Oh, and You're so kind. You're such a joy to work with. This was such a fun experience and hope that you know, we can get back to it soon. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for folks listening, like this is, this is the end of this version and part of what communal table is. I think the idea of communal table lives on a lot of forms. We're hoping to come back to you with a new podcast at some point, stay tuned. And, you know, if, if folks want to make that happen, you know, you can help out too, because you can uh, go to anywhere this is hosted and, you know, get your friends to download it, pass it on and share the links, go back through the archive of a hundred episodes, share those, like it, review it, all that kind of stuff. Let our bosses know you want to hear more of this stuff. That would be kind of awesome. And, uh, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't exist in a vacuum either. So, you know, there were folks who really helped make this happen. Danica Lowe, who's the former digital director of food and wine. Um, did you ever get to work with her? I did not. Our times not overlap, but uh, I've heard nothing but great things about her. Force in the universe. She moved to Hong Kong to be a bigwig. But one of the last things she did was say like, hey, communal table, that should be a podcast. So, <laughs> you know, thanks, Danica. And uh, Jennifer Lomelli, who was 
Jennifer Martinick, when we were saying her name before on the podcast, uh, she got married in the meantime. She uh, produced it for a long time along with Hallie Tarpley, and they were really, really great stewards of it. And uh, and Hallie was sort of helping us as we were bridging over during this. And you kind of had to learn how to do this on the fly, I think. <laughs> but I learned so much from Hallie. I feel like she was kind of guiding spirit in the first few the first few episodes she's she's good good folks and she's and all these people are still in the family like they you know well danica is elsewhere now and stuff but still spiritually part of the family but people you know it's a big big company and there are different people within it but they've you know they they were always such great energy along with all of the camera people who helped us out starting out with um hunter lewis our editor-in-chief has always been a big supporter of it along with our digital boss ryan grimm sarah crowder who puts together the imagery for it it's you know it takes a whole lot of people to get this together and it's been part of food and wine pro this whole time and that is where these stories happen um you know whether they're audio or written or whatever form um someday again when we can see one another in person and i can't wait to see you in person uh these will be actual events and conversations where uh we'll get to talk about all these stories that matter in the in the industry foodandwine.com slash fw pro and while you are there you can sign up for the newsletter which brings you all the news you need to know for the week along with words of wisdom from hunter and uh with uh, news collated and, and curated and lovingly described by Osette Babur, who is our phenomenal associate restaurant editor, who just, she brings the wit, she brings the sass, she brings the knowledge to it every week and gets together all the news you need to know. And, you know, there's always a link to the latest podcast and, you know, it'll be in the, in the newsletter this week. You still have time. The newsletter is going to go out on Saturday and uh, you can get the link to the archive and uh i'm trying to think what else to say i'm getting kind of emotional so <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> tear up we should uh you I'm know i give I... you a little standing ovation you can't see it but i'm giving you a standing ovation right now oh, you're, you're so <laughs> kind and and you know what i say every time that you know i and i'm gonna direct this to you andra but i want you to take care of yourself until the next time and i want to kick it over to like you said, our buddy Kelsey Youngman for the last word. Hello there. I'm Kelsey, the associate food editor at Food and Wine, and I am here with the mantra for the week. Fill in the blank. So lately I've been overthinking children's games, uh, Mad Libs specifically, the game where you fill in the blanks without knowing the rest of the story and end up with, I mean, a hilarious story. It just feels like such a perfect mirror for how we tell ourselves stories in real life too. Filling in our own blanks without checking on anyone else's perspective, writing in motivations and backstories with a pen. So this week, try a pencil. Try to be a little lighter hearted, but also maybe ask someone else about what the rest of the story looks like to them. Fill in the blank with a little more context. I hope you have an eye-opening and beautiful week. Be safe. <laughs>